0: Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer and joining me is my co-host, Amir Tibon. Welcome, Amir. Hi, Alison. So Israel remains locked in a crisis over the Netanyahu government's judicial overhaul this week. Demonstrations and disruptions organized by the massive protest movement against it have become a regular feature of Israeli life. Some estimates of the crowd around the country demonstrating this past weekend were between a quarter of a million and half a million people. And still, at the same time, the controversial legislation continues to move through the Knesset at rapid-fire speed, and there is no evidence of success at attempts at a compromise. We hear news of the potential effects of these reforms for Israel diplomatically and economically. We're lucky to have with us to discuss this, as well as other developments in the region, Martin Indyk, who served as U.S. Ambassador to Israel not once, but twice, in addition to his stint as Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs and Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations. He is now a Distinguished Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome to the podcast, Martin. Thanks for joining us.
1: Very glad to be with you
2: martin we saw a picture this weekend of you in tel aviv walking around the massive demonstration on kaplan street where there were perhaps two hundred thousand people i think it was uploaded by omer barlev the former minister of internal security here in israel what brought you to the demonstration and what did you see there
1: well i wanted to uh first of all see it for myself and uh try to understand it because it is an extraordinary phenomenon that i think has certainly grabbed the attention and the imagination of uh, many Americans, especially American Jews. But I also went to express my solidarity because I suspect I don't feel the sense of anger, but I am uh, dismayed and and very concerned about this judicial revolution that uh, seems to be underway here and the impact it will have on Israel's democracy and therefore the impact it will have on US-Israel relations, which is where I live. We heard
2: Prime Minister Netanyahu call some of these demonstrators anarchists and his uh, son described them as terrorists. Weren't you afraid to walk among such dangerous people
1: during your visit to Israel? Well, first of all, I suspect Prime Minister Netanyahu has called me a lot worse than that. (laughs) But I was quite struck by the nature of the interaction. I mean, you said 200,000 people. I mean, there's a massive number of people and it was a mingle a massive mingle. I'm used to demonstrations, although I have to say it's been a long time, where people are gathered, uh, listening to speeches and uh, cheering on. Uh, This was far more of a a kind of party-like atmosphere where everybody's greeting everybody else and walking around occasionally screaming out democrazia or various other slogans. But I didn't get the sense that uh, anybody was particularly interested in what the speakers had to say. <laughs> Sounds very Israeli. I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. But I was impressed by the age spread. I wouldn't use the word diversity because it didn't seem to me a very diverse cloud. Yes, there were some yarmulke wearing demonstrators, but but very few. It just seemed to be both a very young crowd and an old crowd and everywhere in between. And people, I think, were, were very determined and underneath it a kind of anger, a determination to take their country back, as it were, and an anger that this was happening, the judicial revolution was happening. You
0: said that you were concerned about the implications for U.S.-Israel relations should the judicial revolution pass as it's currently drafted. Can you give us some details, unpack that a little bit? What exactly do you think will be affected in the U.S.-Israel relationship should the reforms pass?
1: Well, the U.S.-Israel relationship is always described as a special relationship. Uh, What is special about it is that it's not just based on common interests. But the common values and the common values go a long way back in America's view, determined by its kind of Judeo-Christian ethics and the focus on the idea of Israel as the homeland of the Jewish people and the Zionist idea, which has captured many, including our current president, Joe Biden. But at heart, it is an identification with Israel as a fellow democracy a Jewish state and a democracy. And that's the value that we share in common. And if Israel is going the way of other illiberal democracies like uh, Hungary, then that will necessarily impact the views of people who wonder whether Israel is quite like us in the way that uh, people have come to assume.
0: The latest news this morning is the European Union calling an emergency session to discuss the deterioration of Israeli democracy. And you mentioned President Biden. Can you remember a time that uh, the US president weighed in on legislation involving domestic Israeli issues before it was even passed into law? It seems like a break with precedent for the US president to have weighed in on that legislation.
1: That's true. And I think it's because as you no doubt have heard him say repeatedly that he sees the defining issue of our time is the battle between democracies and autocracies he's obviously referring to china and russia but he's also referring to the autocratic tendencies of donald trump and the support that that has gained in the united states and i think he's concerned that uh, that's the direction israel's going in but he spoke out in a very careful way. I mean, he gave a quote to Tom Friedman for his op-ed piece. He hasn't been more outspoken. His Secretary of State has been. And that's because I think he, he does have a kind of reluctance to wade into Israel's domestic debates. But he, you know, he's at heart uh, an old-time Zionist who cares about Israel's democracy, I mean, I think quite passionately. And so it would, I think, behoove those, particularly Prime Minister Netanyahu and the other ministers who are pushing this to take that into account. Israel often feels like a very strong country, but it has some fundamental vulnerabilities and it needs the United States. And it does not need to undermine the fundamentals of the relationship for its own future viability.
2: Martin, I think the question is, will there be any real consequences if Netanyahu ignores these warnings from Biden and Blinken and members of Congress? I think some on the Israeli right wing assume that while you will hear denunciations from Democratic members of Congress and maybe Ned Price, the spokesperson for the State Department, will refer to this in the daily briefing. At the end of the day, they will push forward this change. The train will move on and they will not face any real consequences. Do you agree or disagree with this analysis?
1: It's true that uh, the United States over many years now has acted as a kind of indulgent uh, uncle that uh, is not willing to uh, hold Israel to account when it acts against uh, US interests. The most obvious example is in Israeli settlement policy, which the United States has opposed but never done much about in recent history. It it did in the past. But I think that i would said two things about this. On the one hand, those who are opposing the uh, judicial revolution should not count on the United States to be the decisive factor here. The fact that they've taken to the streets in such large numbers is, I think, an indication that they don't depend on the United States. And I didn't see any signs there calling on the United States to engage. So I think that's a good thing. But I often think about um, the United States as this dinosaur that you can poke and you can poke, it doesn't respond until one day it wakes up and then it lifts its tail and comes down with a mighty whomp. And that is something that those who think they can get away with it and there are no consequences should just bear in mind United Israel is heavily dependent on the United States politically economically and obviously for its security. And while I don't think that any president is going to play with Israel's security because that commitment is deep and broad and bipartisan, I do think that there are other things that, that a president can consider. Just think about, it. there was a uh, Security Council resolution uh, moved by the Palestinians, introduced by the UAE, is representing the Arabs in the Security Council. This was just a few weeks ago after the egregious decision to legalize uh, nine illegal outposts and commit to 10,000 more settlement units as if there weren't enough already. And there, it could have moved very quickly to a vote of condemnation in which the United States might have abstained rather than vetoed. It didn't come to that because the United States headed it off this time but it can easily come to that in the future.
2: So your advice to Netanyahu is don't poke the dinosaur too much.
1: Exactly. I would say that the dinosaur has been poked a lot and uh, you just don't know exactly when it's going to wake up. But this judicial revolution, if it moves forward to the point that Israel becomes an illiberal democracy, will have, I think, some serious consequences inside United States and in particular in the Democratic Party.
0: We've seen a lot of the traditional even pro-Israel community in the United States express concern and speak out against it with one exception and that's AIPAC. We haven't heard them weigh in on this issue at all. How do you see the dynamic between the American Jewish community, the pro-Israel lobby and the U.S. government changing as a result of these reforms? Yeah, I
1: think It's not just AIPAC, unless something's happened uh, in recent days that I'm not aware of. It's the American Jewish Committee and also ADL who have been reluctant to speak out on this issue. And that's because of a deeply ingrained sense that they should not criticize the Israeli government, or if they do, it should be done in private, that uh, to do so would just aid Israel's enemies. And that's a a long-held view that is not going to be easily changed, although, as you're probably aware there is contentious debate going on both within the boardrooms of these organizations and other Jewish organizations and with the people who work there because this issue is affecting American Jews in a way that the other issues that are more traditionally related to the Palestinians and Israel security have affected American Jews I think people are very disturbed and essentially that the Look, the vast majority of, of the American Jewish community are not Dati, they're not religious. They are liberals and progressives and they vote Democrat. And we're talking about 65 to 70% of them. And uh, this goes to the heart of their liberal progressive uh, values. You know, my generation, the country that they feel a deep affection to and a deep identification with, to be undermining the basic tenets of the Israeli Declaration of Independence and the idea of, of Jewish and democratic it goes against everything they believe in and support. And it's uh, I think, deeply troubling to the vast majority of uh, American Jews. When we
2: speak about the American Jewish community, there is this, again, argument coming from Netanyahu's orbit, we don't need them anymore. We have evangelical Christians on our side now.
1: Well, in case those who argue that didn't notice, they don't have an evangelical Christian in the in the White House. He happens to be a liberal Democrat.
2: <laughs> Some of them don't even accept that, by the way, but that's a whole different conversation.
1: <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. But I think that those who argue, and I, I'm aware that Netanyahu and uh, Ron Dermer, who's now a uh, cabinet minister, he was an ambassador, argued that... know we we can should depend on the republicans and it's it's just obviously short-sighted because republican uh, presidents and come and go and they're gone and chances are they're not going to come back for for a long time i hope so anyway so in that situation it's a huge mistake to write off the democrats and it's a huge mistake to write off american jews because they are a foundational pillar of the democratic party highly influential there not just for their financial support but for their their votes in key uh, uh, states so that's just wrong-headed and short-sighted
0: before this crisis erupted right after the elections, people were already speculating as to whether the Abraham Accords could really hold together with this kind of an extreme right-wing government in place and provocations by people like Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich in senior positions in the Israeli government. A few days ago, there were reports that MBS, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia was asking for American security guarantees, a loosening of restrictions on arms sales from the US and help in developing a civilian nuclear program in exchange for joining the Abraham Accords. And you were widely quoted as saying that these conditions set out by the Saudis would give President Biden leverage over Netanyahu and his government, perhaps when it comes to their policies in the West Bank and towards the Palestinians. And then a day later came the surprise announcement that Saudi Arabia and Iran, together with China as the interlocutor, announced that they were reestablishing diplomatic relations. Did that change the picture? Did the agreement change the dynamic of what's happening when it comes to Saudi Arabia, the U.S., and by extension, Israel?
1: Yes, I think it did, but not for the reasons that reported in Israel, the Israeli view of that is, I think, misplaced, you know, and, and, but it's understandable. Normalization was supposed to take place with Israel, not with Iran. So uh, that is a surprise, should not have been too much of a surprise since the Iranians and the And the Saudis have been talking for some time. But the complication for the effort to achieve full normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia comes from the fact that China was the broker and Saudi Arabia chose to use China as the broker. Of course, the United States could not be the broker because we don't have relations with Iran. But the fact that Saudi Arabia used China when it was previously using Oman and Iraq plays into the US attitude towards China, which is very uh, hostile at the moment because of Chinese behavior. And that's bipartisan. That's Democrats and Republicans. And there's no real argument, no real debate in Washington about that. So for Saudi Arabia to hand China a diplomatic victory is raise questions about which camp is Saudi Arabia in and I'm quite sure that uh, MBS the Saudi crown prince thinks that he can play between uh, the superpowers and he can uh, use uh, the Chinese to help this uh, rapprochement with Iran and on the other hand go to the United States and expect us to provide sophisticated weapons like uh, f-35s it's on his list and A security guarantee. It was always a difficult proposition, given the attitudes towards him in Washington, particularly in the Democratic Party, and particularly on the part of the president himself, who called Saudi Arabia a pariah uh, during the last presidential campaign, and was then humiliated by Mohammed bin Salman when he went to Saudi Arabia to try to effect a a rapprochement. That environment, the idea that, that the prime minister of Israel is going to come to Washington and tell the president of the United States that he should do all these things for Saudi Arabia, is going to be met with, a, a, you know, a question mark. Whose side is Saudi Arabia on?
2: And you know, Martin, there's another problem here with this uh, Saudi hope, which is that the White House is not inviting Netanyahu for a visit, (laughs) regardless of what's happening with the Saudis and the Iranians. I tweeted earlier this week, I checked when Naftali Bennett arrived in the White House when he was prime minister, and it took just over two months for Biden to host him in the White House. Netanyahu now is almost three months into this new term as prime minister, and not only hasn't he been to Washington, there isn't even any talk of an invitation.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm sure he will be welcomed in Washington within a six-month time frame. But uh, the president has got a lot of other things to deal with at the moment. So I guess that um, it's not his highest priority. When you said before that uh, right-wing politicians think there are no consequences, it's consequential when there are so many concerns that Israel has, should have, about its local and regional environment with the Palestinians in Iran in particular, that the president appears to be keeping the prime minister at arm's length. And it's not inconsequential that uh, the Israeli finance minister is not welcome in Washington. I mean, he may have gone there, but he certainly has no meetings and will have no meetings. So this kind of um, distancing from the new leadership is something that Israel should be concerned about.
0: And at the same time, you have U.S. diplomats repeating slogans of supporting a two-state solution in a reality where you have an Israeli government actively doing everything possible to keep that from happening and move to one-state reality. Do you think the State Department and the U.S. government under Biden is going to keep sort of, you know, keeping things calm and looking the other way? Or do you think there's actually going to be in the coming months, years, remainder of the Biden administration, any kind of actual action thwart this settlement expansion and possible annexation in the West Bank?
1: Well, there are two elements here. Let me just focus on what you said about keeping things calm. That is the priority for the Biden administration has been from day one, because to state the obvious, the president has other more pressing priorities not just at home, but obviously with Russian aggression in Ukraine and Chinese assertiveness in Asia. And he doesn't want trouble in the Middle East to divert him from that focus. And so the efforts of the people responsible for US Middle East policy in the Biden administration have been entirely focused on just calming things down there's going to be a meeting in sharm el shek of the egypt jordan israel palestinian group which was set up and of course the united states will be there which was set up precisely to keep things from blowing up in the west bank and jerusalem as we approach ramadan and pesach again this year just like in previous years when there's a heightened concern about that and so that's really the focus and by the way it's why the president welcomed the rapprochement between saudi arabia and iran because that helps to calm things down in the gulf that's the immediate concern a two-state solution is something that doesn't seem in prospect anytime soon probably not in my lifetime and and probably not in the president's lifetime since he's a little older than me
2: <laughs> Let's be optimistic Martin about uh, <laughs> the two-state solution and everybody's health. So yeah, I don't I want to be too stark about this
1: <laughs> Okay, but thank you, but I appreciate that but definitely It doesn't seem to be a way to get there from here and we can go into the details of why that is But that's certainly the president's view so the proposition for US policy is how to keep the hope alive of a two state solution out of the belief that there is only one solution. If you want to continue the conflict, then pursue one state solutions like present uh, Israeli government. But if you want to solve the problem, if you want to end the conflict, then the two state solution is the only way to do it. But you can't get there from here. So I think, and now this is me speaking, that if the objective is to maintain the hope of a two-state solution, then you've got to, to prevent things from happening that will close that off. And the most immediate one in that regard is the legalization of illegal settlement outposts. Because if they're all legalized, there are over 100 of them, then it's basically the game is up because of where they're located, how they will be connected to major settlements, and, and in effect the, the territory available for a Palestinian state will essentially uh, evaporate in those circumstances, which is precisely the reason why the Israeli government wants to legalize them. So in my view, that should be a red line for the Biden administration. But I don't think that the president wants to have a fight over settlements. I think that from his point of view, he saw it when he was vice president, when President Obama took a stand on settlements, a moratorium from prime minister netanyahu for 10 months and then the palestinians did nothing so it was a lot of grief for no real advantage and given his other priorities i just don't think he's interested in having a fight with israel uh, over settlements and so that is the reality uh, of the moment and i'm concerned about it i think it's a mistake precisely because it will close off the hope of a two-state solution
2: yeah, well, not a lot of hope left on that front here these days. Martin, the last question I do want to ask you we're seeing that while it's, you know, the administration doesn't want to have a fight with Netanyahu over settlements, and we have seen some comments on the issue of Israeli democracy, there could be soon a clash on Iran, correct?
1: No, actually, I don't think so, ironically, although historically, of course, we've had a monumental clash between the United States and Israel. Under Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, so, why not this time? Because the JCPOA is now on the shelf and not likely to be taken off anytime soon mm. because of the negotiating behavior of the Iranian government regime. Mm. And so, there's nothing to argue about anymore when it comes to the JCPOA. Now, the argument is over what's next. And that's something that the United States and Israel coordinating over, discussing, and maybe they'll part ways over ideas of less for less or more for more or whether to use military force or to wield the stick or so on but essentially we're in a in a period now where the united states and israel are essentially talking seriously about what's the next step and so i don't see a clash coming in the near future on that issue.
2: So at least on one front, we have some optimism. Martin Indik, thank you so much for joining our podcast.
1: Thank you, Amir. Thank you, Alison.
0: And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my co-host, Amir Tibon. Thanks to my guest, Martin Indik. To my producer, Amir Factor and editor, Maya Ben-Nisan. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer. Until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.